When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump. <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the N-word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not Blacks. No one but his own kind. The rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man whose own children reportedly just fires campaign manager, Donald Trump. I'm Leon Nafok, in for Jacob Weisberg while he's out on vacation for the next few weeks. Last Friday, I was amazed to read that the Trump campaign is a grand total of 30 staffers on the ground nationwide. This seems shockingly low, but also somehow totally in line with how I envision the day-to-day operations at Trump headquarters. It made me wonder, has Trump succeeded in spite of his, let's say, non-traditional approach to campaigning, or because of it? And what does modern, effective campaigning look like in 2016 in the era of Donald Trump? To help answer this question, I'll be talking to Sasha Eisenberg, the author of The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. But first, let's hear the tweets. Yesterday's failing New York Times fraudulently showed an empty room prior to my speech when, in fact, it was packed. Said case, USA Today did an article saying, I don't pay bills. False. I only don't pay when work is shoddy, bad, or not done. They should do the same. Mitt Romney had his chance to beat a failed president, but he choked like a dog. Now, he calls me racist, but I'm the least racist person there is. Don King and so many other African Americans who know me well and endorse me would not have done so if they thought I was a racist. We're taking in thousands and thousands of people into our country. We have no idea who they are. And they believe in things we don't believe in. Not happening if I am elected president. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My guest today is Sasha Eisenberg, friend of Slate, contributor to Bloomberg Politics, and the Washington correspondent for Monocle, and the author of The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. Sasha, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. So you wrote about these people who were doing fine-grained data analysis, making it possible to target voters with an unprecedented level of precision. These were people who were rejecting political traditions and conventional wisdom in favor of randomized controlled trials aimed at figuring out what really works and, and what doesn't in campaigning. Am I, am I leaving anything out? No, that's about it. You know, I mean, these two strands are distinct, but they sort of came about together over the last 10, 15 years. All this new data that's become available to campaigns that allows them to be far more granular in their targeting. And then these experiments, which allow some ability to test all of the sort of assumptions and conventional wisdom that political professionals have had about what works and what doesn't. Finally, there's this sense you can go out and you can randomly assign people digital ads or knocks on a door and figure out that one thing actually works better than the other. And that was impossible 15 years ago. We just didn't have the basis for for those types of conclusions. And so sophisticated campaigns are entirely different than they were even 10 years ago now. So speaking of sophisticated campaigns, I think before we get to Donald Trump, I wonder if you could tell me what made this new suite of tactics useful. In broad terms, what became possible that was not possible before? Yeah, so the the first thing on, on a sort of broad intellectual change is having kind of scientific evidence that challenged a lot of the, you know, sort of wise man culture of political consulting. You know, and I think Trump actually is right to be skeptical of a lot of political professionals. A lot of people who are around campaigns think that the sort of political consultants who've been enshrined as having some unerring expertise about about knowing what will happen or being able to project cause and effects are often baseless in that. And and so now there are tools for some parts of what campaigns do that allow us to actually measure cause and effect. And the Obama campaign applied that to field organizing in a widespread way. You know, there was this ongoing question in early 2012. I would hear from folks on the Romney campaign or the RNC, and they, you know, they'd look at these media stories that say, okay, Obama open, has 140 offices or whatever open in Ohio, and the Republicans only have 40. Um, and they say, well, who cares? He's just paying more rent on offices. Who needs offices? Well, there was a logic. They knew exactly, you know, it's something like an average of 14 face-to-face contacts from a well-trained volunteer at the doorstep with a voter will... Uh, to mobilize a new vote. And so the Obama campaign built itself around spending a year and a half to build the kind of human capacity to have the type of psychologically meaningful interactions with voters that could turn out their coalition in November, whether or not those people were actually enthusiastic, as, as the polling question goes, about voting for Barack Obama. And so much of the way we talk about campaigns is as though they're a persuasion exercise. It's all about changing people's opinions. And and so much of modern campaigns has become about modifying the behavior of irregular voters. And the, and the Obama campaign reflects the kind of integration of that logic. Real quickly, do you have a, uh, a, a favorite or sort of most impressive example of micro-targeting that the Obama campaign did? Like, what was like the narrowest slice of the electorate that they managed to uh, laser focus in on? Yeah, there was this uh, example where they bought bus advertising in something like 11 cities, you know, and, and on its face, buying bus advertising seems like a very 1950s way to, to get your message in front of voters. But because they had individually mapped households where their target voters lived, they found metropolitan transit authorities that would sell advertising on specific bus routes. 
and then overlay the actual bus routes onto uh, their targets and basically found places that were within a, you know, that ran through certain precincts that had a higher proportion of their voters. Then they went out and actually bought display ads. You know, and I went to Akron, Ohio to basically recreate one of these one of these bus lines where they bought advertising. It was one example, just like door knocking, right, of this very old, old-timey seeming type of communication that, that most campaigns have eschewed, thinking that you know television or now the Internet is the most modern way to spend money. And it turns out that if you base it on a foundation of really solid granular data, you can find all sorts of value in, in these sort of old-fashioned uh, methods. That, I think, is a good transition to our man. Let's talk about Trump. On Friday, we found out something that I was simultaneously shocking and entirely predictable about the Trump campaign when the AP reported that Trump only had 30 paid staff on the ground across the country. What was your reaction when you heard that number? I can't say I'm surprised. I've seen a lot of politicians who are resistant or or political professionals, party people who are resistant to these types of changes that I write about, in part because it challenged their sort of supremacy and decision-making. The fact is that unlike a lot of those folks, Trump has, I think a coherent theory of how elections work. I think it's totally wrong, but it is sort of intellectually seamless. What's the theory? That is, well, I think he thinks of campaigns as only about persuasion, not about mobilization, right? So the idea that campaigns are increasingly a kind of exercise where you basically go out and take slackers who already agree with you, and then through you know, these types of face-to-face interactions, get them to to modify their behavior and go out and do something. Like, that resonated with Obama. Uh, Trump thinks of campaigns only as about getting people to like him. And so if you do that, the whole idea of building an apparatus that is designed solely to go out and interact with people who already kind of like you, you're just like, you know, reminding them of where their polling place is, I think is entirely contrary to his whole notion. And part of his idea of getting people like him has always been through mass media. And campaigns are increasingly realizing that not only is it inefficient to communicate through mass media because you can more efficiently target people directly, but often mass media is counterproductive. Like the worst thing you can do as a campaign is Hillary Clinton's campaign only wants to do get out the vote work in front of Clinton supporters. The worst thing that they can do in November is go remind a Trump person that Tuesday's election day mm-hmm. or leave a, you know, a door hanger that says, here's where your polling place is, here are the hours that's open in front of a Trump voter, right? Or accidentally registering somebody to vote who will vote for Trump, right? There you are creating a vote for your opponent, you know? And so the whole idea that there is a campaign that exists separate from the candidate, that you have surrogates who are out spreading your message? Do you have volunteers who are talking to people on your behalf? Do you have communication through direct mail or digital advertising that isn't your voice? I think it's totally, I think all of that together is, is at odds with his notion of what the campaign is, which is it's him trying to get as many people as possible at a time to hear why they should like him. So is it safe to say, do you think that, that with, with so few people running Trump's ground game, his campaign has not, let's say, taken advantage of the tools and tactics that your book is about? I think totally. <laughs> Although, you know, the only thing worse than not having a ground game is having a bad ground game. So you can end up putting get out the vote reminders in front of the wrong people, either because you're not targeting at all or because you're just using data poorly. Mm-hmm. Um and if there is a lot of fluidity in the electorate, and we see Trump's poll, you know, poll numbers move a lot, um, I sort of argued during the, during the primary season when there was this big question about does Trump need a ground game, I sort of argued that 
He would probably do it poorly if he did it. So why bother? And and so I, I do think that there is, you know, it, the way all this works is through predictive modeling. And so basically what you're doing is you're creating a predictive model that projects the likelihood that every voter in the United States would support you. And then you start segmenting them by these, the same way you would with credit scores, right? Everybody over 700 can get a $10,000 credit line. Everybody under 700 doesn't, right? And And so those are only as good as the data you're putting into them and as frequently as you update them. So we've moved to an era where campaigns now can do sort of basically dynamic scoring where somebody's, as polling changes and public opinion changes, an individual's modeled propensity for supporting a given candidate changes accordingly. But if public opinion is changing and you are not updating your statistical models weekly, daily to reflect that, you could end up in, in October encouraging a bunch of people to request early ballots who used to be your supporters in August, but now are no longer your supporters. Um, and so there is a cost to not doing this stuff, but there, but there may be a greater cost to doing it wrong. And, and, and it may be a, a bizarrely a sort of acknowledgement of, of his limitations in a campaign that, that he's not even going forward and, and making a feint towards doing this. Right. The other part of this is everything we know from all these experiments is that volunteers are more effective than paid canvassers. So a volunteer caller or a volunteer door knocker, even if they don't identify themselves as a volunteer, is more effective than somebody from a paid call center or a paid canvasser reading the exact same scripts, right? Voters can just tell basically, I think, whether you're sincere and you care or whether you're uh, being paid for it. And so Trump has never asked people to do anything for his campaign. He hasn't fundraised and he hasn't asked volunteers in any systematic way to do things other than show up to his, his rallies and kind of lavish attention on him, right? He doesn't even really ask people, his followers in social media to do things for him. And so a field organization works only with a massive capacity of volunteers. And the, the Clinton campaign is trusting volunteers to train other volunteers. The Sanders campaign did this incredibly well, too. So unless Trump was going to sort of change his posture towards his supporters to try to enlist, recruit, encourage volunteers... You were never going to, even if he wanted to write a check for $500 million to build a field organization that would match Hillary's, unless he could get the people to volunteer, not just show up once, but show up recurringly and develop more responsibility, become you know leaders in their neighborhoods, you're never going to deploy those tactics as efficiently uh, as you could. And so doing it half-heartedly is the worst option, and he's actually avoiding that, so... I guess might not be all stupid. <laughs> you know, uh, until very recently, uh, Trump was doing very well in spite of not even trying to have a field operation, let alone taking advantage of the, the tools of empirical campaigning. Has his success uh, over the past you know, six months or so made you second guess at all the importance of the stuff that you wrote about? Uh, no. I mean, I think it's reminded me of how different primary elections are from general elections. Uh Um, You know, so much of why the the focus on mobilization and and by extension ground campaigning makes sense in this environment is that the country is so polarized. And so, you know, you go back 30 years and, you know, a quarter to a third of voters were splitting their tickets between parties, were, were functionally liable to swing in a presidential election between one and the other. And in 2012, you know, it was probably between 8 and 12 percent, maybe, of voters who were actually persuadable between Romney and Obama. And so it, it makes a lot more sense to say, if 10 percent of the electorate is persuadable, what can we do to folks on the other 90 percent of the population 
whose opinions may be hardened, but whose behaviors can be changed either by getting them to register or, or mobilizing them to vote. And the more data we have, the better we can apply the type of pressure we know works. In primaries, there isn't party to tether people's loyalty. And so a lot of voters are persuadable. You know, if you look at, at the polls, I bet 80% of voters over the course of the year in, in, in primary states swung in terms of their loyalty or were soft enough that they could have been poached. And so a focus on mobilization doesn't necessarily make sense in that, in that environment. And, and Trump just went to one extreme of sort of not even trying to pay lip service to that type of politics. He just wanted people to like him. He just wanted people to like it. And what we see is every way in the last few weeks that Trump is running a continuation of a general, of, of a primary campaign in the general election. And one way that's true is he sort of assumes that this still remains a persuasion exercise the way it was in the primary. And everything we know about general elections suggests that it, that it isn't. And he's going to get to October. And if he has a way, even the way he talks about getting, you know, white men in the Rust Belt to, to vote for him, you actually have to go out and get those people to vote, not just to like you, but get them to vote. <laughs> right. and, that's, and that's the one part of the, the transaction that, that seems to, to elude him uh, to this day. Sasha Eisenberg is the author of The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns, which is out now in a new edition featuring an addendum on the 2016 election. Sasha, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Leo. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon, whose ground game is unparalleled. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai, whose data-driven empirical approach keeps us all honest. Andy Bowers, who can count to 1,000 backwards, is our chief content officer. Special thanks to John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I am Leon Nafok. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. At D. Johnson PGA, we are so proud of you, Dustin. Your reaction under pressure was amazing. First of many majors, you are a true champion. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.